just did you see the Barbie movie this weekend? I'm not yet. Yeah, you got tickets yet? Not. Uh, we're going sometime this week, I think, and then uh, Lance is stealing my husband to see Oppenheimer next weekend. So uh, we'll see yeah. that eventually. Like the whole the people doing those back to back just seem weird to me. Like those just seem I'm like I couldn't I couldn't do those back to back. I mean, I mean, it's like it's like an emotional roller coaster. You know, life's short. <laughs> Feel your feels. Do all the things. I don't know. I'm for it. All right. All right. Yeah. My my sister was telling me about one of her friends went to see Oppenheimer. She's like, how was Oppenheimer? And she's like, well, there was a lot of people in pink there. Yeah. It seems, that feels... so, it seems so surreal. I'm, like, I, I'm cool you're, with the you're, juxtaposition. You're I, gonna, I like the harsh extreme. You're going to watch a movie about the atomic bomb and mm-hmm. everybody's wearing pink. Mm-hmm. That's like bright pink, mm-hmm. like Barbie. Do you want everybody pink. to go in wearing black and just make it even more somber and depressing in there? Because there's no way that's a happy movie. It goes into the experience just as if go wearing pink goes into the Barbie experience. Like you're not gonna like get into but your Barbie. Oppenheimer. You're not gonna get into your Oppenheimer gear and then go to the Barbie. Do you have Oppenheimer gear? <laughs> I mean, I might, if I did. <laughs> Do you have Barbie gear? I I looked in my closet. I have one pink shirt, and I will wear it when I see it. Good to know. Did you play with Barbies growing up? Um, some. Since I have an older sister, I got mostly her hand-me-downs. Um, so we had a couple of the token, uh, not great Barbies with cut hair, and they were colored on and you know oh yeah secondhand barbies yeah it's fine that sounds like a great band name secondhand barbies yeah that could work uh, what kind of music would you play probably like um the cover band pre uh pre edm skrillex you <laughs> you don't even know what that is <laughs> you... <laughs> No. Well, after after like hearing all the hype and everything, I definitely want to see both of them. But I'm mm-hmm. very I'm very interested in the Barbie movie. However, I did just find out today that it's a three hour long movie. Did you know that Barbie's three hours? Yeah. I knew Oppenheimer was like three hours. I don't think Barbie's three hours. I mean, it's like a whole day at the movies. Super excited for today's guest. Uh, Mita Malik is um, one of the leading voices on uh, diversity and equity and inclusion. Um, you can find her on LinkedIn, uh, and she's also got her own podcast, Brown Table Talk. We're going to talk a little, a little bit about that, as well as a book coming out. Um, but she's got so much just valuable information in this conversation, probably one of my favorite interviews that we've done so far. What did you think? Yeah, it's all really good stuff. I mean, I've mentioned it in the actual recording, but um, with my background in the beauty industry, you see a lot of lack of diversity everything is very segregated in the beauty world still and there are some companies actively making difference and then there are plenty that are just faking it so um yeah i liked getting her insight it's interesting to hear from an expert well it's not it's not often that you get a chance to talk to someone who's had such a a wide range of experience from Mm -hmm. managing the global products and brands and then transitioning into this this world um that is relatively new of of being a uh, a director of, of diversity and inclusion and mm-hmm. um and so just hearing hearing it from both sides she makes some great points um super super great convo um and we hope that you get a lot out of it yeah. so without further ado 
Let's get this fire blazing. Mita, you have a wide range of experience from managing global brands, navigating the world of cross-cultural marketing, writing for the Harvard Business Review, Adweek, Entrepreneur, and now you're head of equity, inclusion, and impact at Carta. Um, I've been following you on LinkedIn for a while now and love your content and thought Mita would be an amazing guest for the podcast. And so just kind of took a shot in the dark and, and messaged you and you graciously responded. And so we're excited and honored to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation today. Fantastic. And we don't want to forget, um, you actually have your own podcast, uh, Brown Table Talk. Um, and you are about to publish your first book, um, The Reimagined Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. So it, it may be good just to kind of give us, tell us a little bit about those two things, uh, uh, Brown Table Talk and, and your book. Yes. Well, as you know, a podcast is no easy feat, easy to listen to, but much harder to produce. So kudos to you all. And thanks for having me here today. My friend DC Marshall and I had this idea to turn our text messages and audio exchanges and late night calls and dinners into a podcast. And really what we wanted to do was create a space for women of color to think about how they could stop surviving but start thriving in their workplaces. And we wanted allies to be part of that conversation. We self-funded the first eight episodes and didn't know if anyone would actually listen to it. And uh, we started to get a lot of great traction in the marketplace and LinkedIn came calling. And so we're part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network, which is awesome. And the podcast just entered season seven. And so that's really exciting. And the podcast actually was really instrumental in helping me get a book deal, a book deal that I waited four years for. I talk a lot about how rejection was redirection. And I finally was signed with Wiley for a book that's coming out October 3rd of this year. And as you said, the title, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. So I am really excited to have everyone finally read the book. And they can they can pre-order that right now. Yes, too, right? please. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. the shout out. Please go pre-order on Amazon or your local bookstore. Would so appreciate it. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on both of those. But seven seasons of a podcast, that's a lot of work um, and is, yes. and a book. So those are both two big, two big mountains that you've already conquered for sure. So you went from brand management to DEI. What was that trajectory like for you? Was that, was that always a goal? Is it just something you kind of fell into? How did that come about? That was not always the goal. If you talk to me, I don't know, 10 years ago, I probably wanted to be a chief marketing officer. I thought about my path and my life as being very linear. It reminds me of Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, when she talks about careers are not ladders, they're jungle gyms. But I was very much raised into thinking I was going to be an associate brand manager and brand manager and senior brand. And I just kind of went like this. And it was at Unilever where my then CEO came to me and said, I really want you to lead diversity, equity and inclusion efforts for our company. And I had my own biases. I thought, I don't, I'm not going to be an HR. Like I'm going to lead another big brand here. And it took my younger brother because younger brothers are sometimes the smartest. And he said to me, like, you've been chasing inclusion your whole life. This is something that's meant a lot to you. Like, why wouldn't you do this on a bigger scale for an organization? Because I had always come 
at business through an inclusion lens. Inclusion is a driver of the business. So I can remember the first time working for a really big beauty brand and really advocating to have for the first time black representation in like a 360 activation. I can remember making color cosmetic products that did not work on my skin tone and asking that question, like, who are these products for? Because I don't see the eyeshadow popping on my face or the blush. And then I can remember being at Unilever and a career high being signing Viola Davis to help turn around the Vaseline business. And so I think throughout my career, inclusion was always a driver of the business. I always wondered why there weren't more people like me in film and commercials, like on boxes in the grocery aisles. And so that always drove me. And so for me, the transition from doing marketing to doing inclusion work, I, I feel like it's a really, it makes a lot of sense to me in terms of the bridge between those two things. I mean, when you think about it, you, from from just a purely business marketing level, you, you're a if you're not doing those things, you are leaving out a whole market or markets. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, and rightfully so, when we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, I think about four pillars. We focus a lot on workforce, which is important, right? You want to make sure that the communities in which you operate operate in, it's reflected within your workforce at all levels. But then I think the second pillar that is gaining more and more traction that people think about is, are your brands and products and services how are they being represented in the marketplace? And who are you speaking to and who are you intentionally or unintentionally ignoring? And then of course there's supplier diversity, which really connects to marketing. Like who do you write checks to and why? I've worked for a many public company where it's like, you know, we write the same few million dollar check to the same agency. And you ask yourself like, why aren't we actually looking at more diverse suppliers? Like what would that look like? And then I think the fourth, which we're seeing a lot in the marketplace now is like, your brand can say you're ready to stand for values, but when are you ready to stand up for them? It's really easy for me to post something on Instagram, but then as a brand, am I really, as a company, am I really living up to the purpose that I am posting on social media? Yeah, I I completely agree. It's it's easy, really easy to give lip service to some of these things and a lot harder to make meaningful decisions around them. Yes. Well, what at its core, what what does it mean in in your point of view to to have an inclusive culture? That's a great question. I talk about it in Reimagine Inclusion. What does inclusion mean? I work Jeremy for you and or Jess for you, and inclusion for me is about I feel valued, seen, and recognized, and my contributions matter, and I feel like I belong here, like I belong working for you and on your team. And as much as I might like the next person that comes around, if they offer me twenty, thirty thousand dollars more, it's gonna get be hard for me to leave because what I have here is priceless. And so I really want more leaders to think about inclusion being a driver of retention. And I think fundamentally we can we all know we all wanna be included, right? And we've had these moments in our career and in our life where we know what it means to be excluded. I think anyone listening or the two of you right now as you're thinking about this, I'm sure you can pull up a memory of a time when you felt excluded and how painful that was. And so that's what I really want people to think about when it comes to inclusion. And I think the same principle for brands too, right? Now, you can't be all things to all people because that's not good marketing we know, right? But really thinking about if you say you want to serve this community authentically and with purpose, are you really doing everything you can to make sure they're included in your brand community? in terms of how they're being represented on screen, 
online, in our social media feeds and products and services, so on. So a lot of this, I mean, as we're working to change these things, a lot of sure. a lot of these things come to a point where there's tension in the workplace, mm -hmm. I feel. Um, yes. I know for us, it's been working with clients um, a few times, one where we uh, put um, some creative together and it was, uh, there, there were non-white animated characters. Mm -hmm. And this client came to us and said, this this isn't our audience, mm -hmm. which, you know, we, we were taken aback by, but like, how, how do you, and, I, and I'm sure there's people in, in, in uh, CMO and marketing director roles that are, that are trying to make some headway with this. How do you do that strategically and effectively? Yeah, that's a great question. I've definitely been in your shoes in that situation where I have had general managers or CMOs when I was on their team some time ago say to me, well, that's not our audience. And the question I ask, well, how do you know if that's not your audience if, if you've never tried to speak to them, right? Like, how do you know? And it starts with, I would say, really small things. Like, if you've ever been in a pitch and or your agency is coming in to present an activation and you see the mood board, right? What's a mood board? It gives you a sense. Well, that details you have, it gives you a sense of what the campaign will look like. Every single person on the mood board is white presenting. And so then you ask the question like, okay, that is actually where the seed starts, right? Even those subtle things. Oh, it's just a mood board. No, it's not a mood board. It's permeating into my consciousness, right? It's not just a mood board. It's so important. And so the other thing I like to go back to is the facts of what's happening from a U.S. perspective. A recent study that Mark Pritchard, who is one of the marketing leaders at Procter & Gamble and his blog, he talks about how there's close to $5 trillion of spending power with the multicultural consumer in the U.S. alone. And then you start thinking of other dimensions of diversity and how people identify the LGBTQ plus community, individuals with disabilities, veterans, if you identify as Muslim. Well, I mean, I can go on and on. And there's intersectionality there. There's also allies, right? I'm on a journey to be an ally for the LGBTQ plus community. So you better believe when I see brands stepping in and standing up, I'm more likely to spend my money with that brand. And so there's also just the, the, the sheer business impact. And that if you are telling me right now there's no growth to be had in your business, you're not looking in the right places. You're not thinking about your business differently. You're not actually thinking about the opportunities you are missing to enhance, this, enhance the quality of someone's life with your product and service. And that's someone whose lived experience you're just not aware of. Can we take a moment and kind of dive into just a little bit of a hot topic? It's, it's, not, sure. it's, it's almost cooling off. It's not as hot as it used to be about a month or two ago. But the mess that Budweiser got themselves into when they kind of half-heartedly tried to be inclusive, but then pulled back. Right. Target, I would add to that as well. Although Target breaks my heart because yeah. they have a much longer standing history and they have a much, well, I will say from my perspective, Target really doing the work and being committed to the work of inclusion for, for the long haul and what happened in June has just been really heartbreaking to watch. How do you think that could have been handled better on, on both or either of those? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I worked with Ben and Jerry's when we were just coming out with Black Lives Matter and our thoughts around Black Lives Matter. And this was 
before white leaders were comfortable saying Black Lives Matter, let's be honest. But one of the things that Ben and Jerry's did so well is that they knew there would be a backlash with Blue Lives Matter. So they really thought about all of the reactions they would get to putting forward their view on Black Lives Matter. And they really were just thought very carefully about racist backlash that they would receive. And they were very comfortable with who they were as a brand and that they weren't going to back down from anything. And so I think that like, while it's so important when you're crafting brands with purpose, you can't be all things to everybody. But if you decide this is an issue that is really core to your brand and your community, and you're going to say it and you're going to stand up for it, you have to anticipate what the market reaction might be. You know, when I go back to the Target incident, the thing that I can't really figure out is I actually understand the real threat to employees in store, right? So for anyone listening, uh, Target received a number of threats during Pride Month because of their commitment to the LGBT plus community and the products and services they had on display in store and online. And there were threats to the safety of employees. And I just thought to myself, like, couldn't you hire security? Couldn't you make a different statement? And I'm not trying to be that flip about it because I am not target leadership, but I just wondered, was there another way to handle that? Because the threats are real, no one's saying that they're not real. But then how else could you say, these threats are real and we care about the community and we care about our employees. So we're not gonna back down, here's what we're gonna do. And you know, they ended up making a different choice. They ended up pulling a number of products and brands uh, online and in, in store. Yeah, I think it's it's a we're in an interesting time where we've never had as much opportunity for uh, equity um, than we do now. But we've also not had as it's not as been as maybe contentious as it is now, too. And I think that leaves it leaves a lot of people kind of in this. You want to do something, but you're just not really sure all the time how to do it. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is is real and right. There's a big backlash right now against diversity, equity, inclusion. And it makes me really sad because we've polarized it to a point of it's woke, it's anti-woke. It's political, it's apolitical. We can't talk about this, right? And I always say to leaders when they're like, I can't talk about this issue. I always try to coach them to say, it's through the lens of privilege that we think something is political. So if a leader says to me, anti-Asian hate crime, xenophobia, just too political. For me and my community, it's life and death. It's not political. It's hurt and harm that's being caused to individuals who have been marginalized. And so that's what I also want leaders to think about is the marketplace is changing, the demographics of the US are changing, our employees are forgotten consumers. You know, like Mm. we're so busy thinking who we're gonna sell, how much to and why, we forget that the people working for us are also consumers and thinking about how their lives are being impacted is so important. And so I do think back to your question when it comes to brands, it's like, you know, I talk about this in Reimagine Inclusion, sit it out. If you're not ready, sit it out and do the work. So just mm-hmm. because it's Pride Month, I see too many marketers who will race to be like, oh my God, it's Pride Month. I got to put a rainbow on something. Or just these things that you hear say, no, that's not, no, no, don't do anything, right? It's going to cause more harm and good. It's going to be co- coming off as diversity washing or rainbow washing. And so... If you feel like, oh, I think about my brand, I think about the community, 
think about where I see this going and the values we want to stand for. And then I think there's an intersection here and here. So then do the work and also ask for help. Like I was trained to be a marketer. We're arrogant, right? It's like we, I know you so well, I can surprise and delight <laughs> you with the product or service you never expected. Do I actually know you and your lived experience or life experience? And that's where we get into trouble. So then ask for help. How can I serve the black community if I don't have black voices around the table, mm. right? Like, how can I do that if I actually haven't asked for help? And like, what's so fascinating about marketing, it's an ecosystem. It's not me, me to the marketer who just pressed the post on Instagram. That's rarely how it works for a lot of these larger businesses. There are a lot of people involved. So ask yourself at any point, whose voice are you including and are you hearing it? So, so part of what I'm hearing you say is there's easy, ineffective work Yes. And then there's hard and effective work. And a lot of the times we don't take the time to do the hard, effective work that this Absolutely. really requires. And I think some of the best in class examples, when I think about brands standing up for issues that matter, Patagonia, Ben and Jerry's, Sephora, I would have included um, Target, but I think you know, we're on pause there and they have an opportunity just like we all make mistakes in relationships. This is a brand and consumer relationship. So the question is, how will they show up? Do better, be better. Mattel and Barbie, like there are so many examples. And I think when you look at the example really clearly, when we talk about Mattel, but like they have been at it for a long time and they've made a lot of mistakes. They didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, here it is. We're going to fix this. No, it's been a, a you know, their 60 plus year brand. It's been a long journey for them. I love all of this. Um, my background is in the beauty industry. Mm, so oh. there's we are just kindred spirits. Yeah. Yeah. Across the board in school and hair and makeup, all of it. It's everything needs some work for sure. Um, and I think there were or have been a lot of band, brands over the last few years that have done the easy route and not actually incorporated in-house actions to make a difference. So what I got from the last bit you were saying is that it needs to start within. What, where do you advise people to go from there? I mean, obviously, if you're going to be inclusive with your clientele or customers, your base, whatever, you have to be inclusive in-house. So what is, how do you advise to go from there? Advising brands? Yeah. I mean, I'll give an example, a story, and then I can share it to actions. I was a few years ago on Instagram. This is after the diversity tipping point, with my, which my co-host, DC Marshall, to coined as um, the diversity tipping point reflecting the period after the murder of George Floyd when corporate America said Black Lives Do Matter. So I remember flipping on Instagram, and like you, I'm a beauty obsessive. And I see this beautiful image of a black woman with stunning makeup. I won't mention the beauty brand. And I thought to myself, gosh, if this eyeshadow is going to work on her skin, it'll work on mine. And so then I go to actually look for the products. They don't have the products. And that's what I've coined diversity dressing. I talk about it in Ad Week. I've also included it in Reimagine Inclusion. It's like you want to appear to seem that you have diversity representation in your brand. So it's really easy to find beautiful images. But when I think about that black model, I think about my skin, it's not just about foundation, right? I want 
I want all of it. You can sell it all to me. I want the lipstick. I want the eyeliner. I want the eyeshadow. I want the blush. And then I go and I'm like, oh, you don't even have a foundation that works for this model skin, but it's very easy for you to post. And so I think it starts with like, again, understanding the demographics of the US are quickly changing, understanding what communities you have an area to serve. And you don't, you might not be able to do all at once, nor should you, but really trying to understand like beauty is a great example. Thinking about particularly for cosmetics, like it has taken me years to find a foundation where I don't look orange, right? Or a sunscreen that doesn't make me look like Casper the Friendly Ghost, right? Where I'm like covered in light. And so huge opportunity to think about let's audit our products and to think about where can I slowly be extending and testing and trying. And it's the same question that you brought up earlier, which was like, well, that's not, that's not my audience. It's like, you've never spoken to them, right? Or I used to get the, if we add more pigment to that eyeshadow, Mita, it's going to cost more. Well, how do you know I wouldn't pay more for it? Like, how do you know I wouldn't, why are you making assumptions about, again, the bias of like what I would or wouldn't pay for, or my community would or wouldn't pay for? So I think the audit piece, understanding where the business drivers are, coupled with an audit, coupled with what can you do, like step by step, right? Because the last thing you want to do is go out like, Rihanna with Fenty, which she did absolutely correctly and took a lot of time, that that didn't happen overnight, right? She did a lot of research for that, her and her yeah. team. Similarly, you have to be ready to do, the, do research and also like, you don't have to wait for the whole thing to be ready. You can say, hey, we're going to add these two lines, more coming in the spring, and start to test mm -hmm. some of the products with consumers and get feedback. So this being a marketing podcast, I got to ask you a, kind of an advertising and, and marketing question directly. What is an ad from a brand that you've seen in the last 12 months that you think is doing this right? They, they tackled it authentically, um, effectively. Um, it wasn't just a, a fluffy commercial. It was something that with, with some, some meat to it. I actually want to talk about Mattel and Barbie because it seems like the big cultural moment. The world mm -hmm. has yeah. exploded in pink. I'm in yeah. the Barbie world, even if I don't want to be. I talk about Mattel because I'm like, you know, gosh, I didn't, I grew up with all white dolls and they have come so long. It's over so far. It's over 35 plus skin tones, 94 plus hairstyles, over nine body types. They have a commitment to include more black and brown role models. They have really focused on individuals with disabilities. I discovered this when I was buying my daughter's Barbie dream house a wheelchair accessible elevator, like all the details of how far they've come. And I believe with the movie, as I've been watching, a really powerful, diverse cast. Issa Rae is president. American Ferrara plays a human and a Mattel employee won't give the movie away. I think there's some, you know, again, there's tension in this. There has been some commentary, which I've also included in a piece for Adweek. Interesting that they didn't cast an individual of color in the Ken or Barbie lead role. There's a lot of diversity throughout the film, but are they supporting actors or are they key part of the, So there's that tension, but I have seen, I mean, the, I hope, I hope the Barbie marketing and PR team is okay because the number of activations, right? You, I mean, it is un unreal. They've been, I've read a piece in the Wall Street Journal where it was like 18 months ago they started to see how much Barbie product they could put to the marketplace. But a lot of the activations 
have also been pretty inclusive, right? And that's interesting because Barbie's either licensed or partnered with brands like Gap, like Xbox, like, like, so it's like a partnership there for them to make sure, hey, Gap, we're going to work on this, but are you going to show diversity representation in your ads with who's wearing the Barbie t-shirt, which they've had? So I think I've been pretty impressed with the activations. I think when it comes to the content of film, I think there's been some criticism on who was cast in what role. Well, I, I am now regretting the fact that I didn't make a point to, to watch the movie this weekend, uh, on this debut <laughs> weekend. But in my defense, when I went to check the tickets, there's only the only two seats that were left were like right in front of the screen and like Can't nobody wants those nope. seats. No, nope. there'll be plenty like, of time. Can't yeah. do it. Can't be right in front of the screen. <laughs> I think I would get those seats for Barbie, though. Well, like, well have you seen just, it? Have, did you see it? I have not seen it yet, but I, I would sit front row for Barbie. We we need to do our our marketing and cultural homework and go watch the Barbie movie. It sounds like. <laughs> you know, I also think, um, and this is different when you ask about a piece of content. I'm going to go back to Mattel and Barbie. You know, the movie launched, as you said, um, it's it's launched this summer with big fanfare. They started the teasers and excitement back in April. And what I thought was so smart in terms of content is they had a self-generating selfie. And so it went wild and crazy, but it was part of the promos where they had every single actor, actress who was in the film had this Barbie is wild, um, relentless, president, right? With images. And so you could see who the whole cast was, which was awesome. And then they had, I mean, it just went viral on social media. Twitter, Instagram, consumers finally felt like they were reflected in the brand because I could create my own you know, selfie that said, this Barbie is powerful. This Barbie feels included. It's pretty amazing. So yeah. I think I've, there's just so many moments throughout leading up to the launch of the film that I think they did really well. Well, and it seems like, one of the things they've done well with all of this and when it comes to, to um, inclusion is they've really saved the best for the movie, it seems like. Again, I haven't seen it, but I've seen all the, the conversation about it. And all, all I've seen is these like really impactful moments in the movie that people are applauding. And so they've, they've done a lot of hype. They've, they've yes. done their marketing like as best as a movie could probably ever do marketing. And but they've saved these just treasures of of truth in the movie itself. Absolutely. I think some people are calling it very feminist, dare I say woke, <laughs> but very uh, Barbie embracing sort of the, the nostalgia and also perhaps how outdated this idea of a Barbie is in present day. So it won't give the film away. But it's pretty interesting, their take on the role of women and men in today's society. And so I think it was a, a very fresh and, and smart perspective on really taking on the stereotype of Barbie. Well, it kind of kind of leads me to another question um, that it seems like they may have done this uh, effectively to a certain extent. But where does humor have what, like what places humor have? in the conversation and marketing and, and uh, brand representation. I think they got humor spot on. It sounds like they were self-deprecating a lot based on Barbie and the history of Barbie and 
how Barbies look and are supposed to act and, and sort of a reflection on when Barbie was first brought into the marketplace, women's roles in society and all of that. I think humor can be important and can be an effective tool. Who doesn't like a funny joke, a funny story? I think the watch out for me is what you find funny and I find funny can be different based on lived experiences. So an accent sounding funny, someone looking funny, someone acting funny. Those are the things where it can become dangerous if we don't understand another person's lived experience. And you know, I always think about it, this work starts at the kitchen table, I always talk about that. Not at our conference room tables, not in our boardrooms, it starts at home. And so even with my young children, I think about when they're like, oh, Mita's funny or odd looking or strange or weird, or they're talking about someone in class. And I say, well, what do you mean by that? And we should watch the language that we use because it is funny until it's not funny, until you start to other and stereotype, and that becomes the gateway to hate. Because sometimes humor is important, right? It's important to laugh and enjoy life as long as you're not using it and weaponizing it to other somebody else. Right. And I think that's the difference. I think brands have to watch out for that as well. Right. Like how you use humor effectively and inclusively, because I can't use humor about another community if I don't really understand that community really well. And, that, and if I don't have the voices of that community at the table. Right. Yeah. There's a big difference between a character, whether in a movie or ad or whatever, versus a caricature of someone. Yes, I love that. And that's that. a fine line for a lot of these big brands. Absolutely. Well, one one topic I wanted to hit on, it was sponsorship. Um, in, in an interview with, with Adweek, you said, one of my biggest career sponsors has been Gail Tifford, uh, the chief brand officer. Um, she wants to ask you a question that changed the course of your career. You said, she asked you, do you know who is talking about you and fighting for your career when the doors are closed? And it was in that moment that you realized that uh, you were over-mentored and under-sponsored. Yes. And so before reading that, I wasn't really familiar with the idea of sponsorship. Um, and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that uh, aren't uh, familiar with it either and may need to be for themselves or perhaps for people that they can sponsor. Can you talk a little bit about what it is? How do you How do you be a good sponsor or how do you ask for sponsorship? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me tell you, I was really naive when I started my marketing career in corporate America. Yes, doors are closed and people are talking about you and your career. I had no idea that happened. Like, I didn't know there were these big talent reviews. I'm like, oh my God, people are talking about me. And so here's the difference between mentorship and sponsorship. And I get a lot of flack in social media when I talk about this. I'm not saying that mentors aren't important. They're important. I wouldn't be here today on your podcast, if I hadn't had amazing mentors and still have mentors, we could be mentors for each other after this podcast, right? And so mentorship is so important, but the difference is you aren't in a position to sponsor my career at this moment. You're not two levels above me in my organization. That's how I think about sponsor, two levels above me, big access to PNL budget. They're in the room when talent decisions are being made. They will get my name on a slate for a role I didn't even know existed. They will get me on a special task force. They will get me paid more. They will say my name when I'm not in the room. They might even get me a meeting with the CEO. And so sponsors are somebody who's actively advocating and helping you advance your career, and they have the power to do so. 
And so what I talk about in Reimagine Inclusion, too many organizations get this wrong. It's like, we have a retention issue, let's launch a mentorship program. We need more people of color in leadership, let's launch a mentorship program. Oh, we're moving offices and people are unhappy, let's launch a mentorship. I mean, I can give you any problem, be like, let's launch a mentorship program. And so that's that to me is the fundamental difference. Now, the question you asked is like, how do you get a sponsor? It's not like, you know, the best friend necklace from elementary school or the high or friendship bracelet. Hey, will you be my sponsor? That's not how it works. Like I always thought about um, how I can align myself to find a sponsor. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm a senior brand manager in the beauty division and my boss has just asked me to review our media investments for the last year. Take a look at the media investments we made for the last year and what was our return. Okay, great project. So I'm working on that and I think to myself, who else might be interested in that project and the organization? Likely the CFO, right? Now, depending on the organization, I might not have access to the CFO, I might have access to a VP of finance, but I could easily put a a meeting on Jess's calendar and say, hi Jess, like I am so-and-so, I work in this division, wanted to get some time on your calendar, I'm working on this analysis. Jess's interest will probably be peaked, she'll meet with me, and I'll talk her through it. And all of a sudden, she's like, huh, I have a few more changes. Why don't you come back to me in four weeks? Go back to her in four weeks. We talk again. Hey, do you mind coming to my team meeting and presenting this? I think this is really interesting data you've pulled together. So do you see how I'm building this relationship where there are times where I just might want to meet with you and ask you for your journey on your career? But this is really with the work that I'm showing up. And I'm thinking strategically because I know she's going to buy into it and she's going to want a part of it. And so next time when there's a talent review and my name is up for promotion, the CFO is immediately going to be the first one to say, you know what, I actually, here's why I think Nina deserves the promotion. I've actually watched this analysis she's been working on. And then guess what? You shine, I shine. So you're also going to take credit for my promotion. If the CFO is is promoting, is is in for promoting you, then that's a pretty good position. So for customers, do you have guidance on how people can tell that a brand or company is genuine and authentic with their inclusivity? Is it just do the research and try to see what you can find or what? I would say, you know, Google's our best friend. (laughs) Start with Googling, start looking at social media handles. Like, is it the first time and only time they posted something? Really interesting to get a sense of that. I also think about like the employee experience, like employer brands are a real big piece of it too. Like. Do they have a diversity, equity, and inclusion effort? What do they say on their website? Are they hosting conversations around inclusion? Do they have employee resource groups? Like, you know, start to look at all the different pieces. Who's on their leadership team? Who's on their board? There's lots of different ways you can pull together if they are walking the talk or whether this is just a check the box moment. And we live in such a connected world right now my advice is if you're interviewing somewhere and you want to really understand what the experience of working there is, get the offer first. And then you can be in the driver's seat and ask for additional meetings. You can also use LinkedIn and look up former employees, ask them what it was like to work there. And of course, everyone's experience is different, but there are so many ways to actually assess where a company is on their journey. And you have to be comfortable Like I've worked in places where I'm like, we are early on our journey, but I'm excited to be here and hear the things we're working on. I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to be upfront and honest, right? 
So when you come in, you're not surprised. And I think that's what people want. They want the honesty. Like, it's okay to be on a journey and be early in it, as long as you're upfront about it and you're not hiding it. Well, Mita, thank you for what you are doing um, in in this realm. Um, it's It's been neat to, to kind of see uh, your posts on LinkedIn and, and then to, to get to learn more about you. If other folks want to follow you, um, again, you're on LinkedIn. Uh, that's probably one of the best places to, to connect, I'm guessing. And then if they want to follow up with the, the podcast, they can find Brown Table Talk on Apple, Spotify, all the other places, I'm guessing, too. Yes. Yep. And then um, and, and they can pre-order the book on Amazon. Yes. Thank you. Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. I know you're all going to love it, so I appreciate you checking it out. Thank you for having me. This was an awesome conversation. I appreciate you both. Thanks, Mina. Yeah, thank you. Marketing Trailblazers with Jeremy LaDuke and Jess Tackett is produced by me, Lance Pettiford, co-produced by Kaylee Eastep, graphic and web design by Will Lunsford, and guest support provided by Kaylee Swaggerty. Marketing Trailblazers is a production of Epic Nine Marketing Outfitters, helping ambitious brands grow since 2014. If you are a CMO looking to conquer some mountains, or you need a CMO to help get you to the top, then contact Epic Nine and get started with a Basecamp consultation at epicnine.com. Want more great content to help fuel your marketing adventures? Sign up for exclusive content and get early access to our Marketing Mountain School content at marketingtrailblazers.com. Mm-hmm.